It's Tuesday, December 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A CDC panel over the weekend has made its recommendations on who is next in line to receive the two vaccines we have available so far. What is called Phase 1B will see first responders such as police and firefighters, other frontline workers like teachers and grocery workers, and people over 75 get the vaccine. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for who's next in getting the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. Next, the airline industry is looking to more testing as a way to make people feel safer while flying. What will that look like? Think testing sites at airports, adding results to passenger records, and offering flights only for tested passengers. While it may help, some caution that tests aren't always reliable and fake negative test certificates are already making the rounds. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, when kids were forced into remote learning because of the pandemic, many parents turned to learning pods to help their children retain some semblance of traditional learning. Some parents, however, quickly found out that these pods and these new forced social circles came with their own problems. Anna Silman, writer at The Cut and New York Magazine, joins us for some learning pod problems. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Phase 1B, persons aged 75 years and older and frontline essential workers. Phase 1C, persons aged 65 to 74 years, persons aged 16 to 64 years with high-risk medical conditions and other essential workers. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. A CDC panel met over the weekend to give their recommendations for who should be next in line for the vaccine. We have two vaccines out right now, one from Pfizer, one from Moderna. They're very similar vaccines. We've talked about them a lot before, these mRNA vaccines. So the first people that were recommended to get these vaccines, the uh, Phase 1A, were frontline healthcare workers and people in long-term healthcare facilities. Now we're going to Phase 1B. This is going to be police, firefighters, teachers, and other essential, frontline essential workers like grocery store workers. So, Karen, tell us what happened at the CDC meeting and what they were recommending. So this committee makes the decisions, makes the recommendations as to who should get the vaccine in what order. And they did exactly what you just said. They recommended that people who are on the front lines, who can't stay home and keep themselves safe, be in the next group of people. So, as you said, teachers, grocery store clerks, firefighters, that sort of thing and also people over 75. So again, the people at highest risk for poor outcomes if they catch COVID. And to put this all in perspective, you know, obviously we're doing this because doses of the vaccine are in limited capacity. This phase that we're talking about right now, phase 1B, the second phase, isn't supposed to start until February, right? I think that'll probably start sooner than that. So what they said today was 20 million doses in December. I think that will cover hospital workers and people in nursing homes. And then the next round will start at some point in January. We don't have a date yet. And there'll be 30 million doses available in January. So 30 million more people will be able to get vaccinated in January. And the 20 million who got vaccinated in December for the first time will be able to get their second shot in January. We've talked about this before. You know, states have the final say in who will get the vaccine next. These are just recommendations, but these are really difficult decisions and things to play out, things to go through on who should be next. And they make the recommendations at the local level. You know, a lot of people can be angry or maybe say, hey, you're leaving other people out, things like that. 
but just talk a little bit about how difficult some of these decisions could be. To me, one of the trickiest is prisoners, people who are behind bars. So obviously, you know, we want to protect upstanding citizens first, but there's been huge outbreaks in prisons around the country and their outcomes are much worse than they are in the general population. And also people from the public come into these prisons, prison guards, visitors, that sort of thing. So what happens in the prison doesn't necessarily stay in the prison. So the question is, when do you vaccinate them? Do you vaccinate them now as you vaccinate nursing home residents and other people in congregate settings and in group settings, or do you wait until later? I saw that correction workers are in this phase 1B. Are prisoners in that category as well? I think that's pretty much up to the states. I don't think they're saying you have to put them in one group or another. Some states have already begun in the first group, and other states are saying, no way, we don't want them that early. So it really is going to be a state-by-state decision there. The panel did also recommend the phase after that, phase 1C. And in there, you get you know public health workers, food service workers, construction workers, media workers, and a few others. Those are people, again, who can't exclusively stay home, whose jobs take them not into a high-risk situation, but into a situation where they come into contact with other people. Where do people get in line for these vaccines and prove that they are who they are, that they are one of these frontline workers? Do they go through their employers? Are they going through their healthcare providers? How do they get in line for these? You know, I'm not sure that's entirely clear yet. It's very easy with this first round. You know, the hospital is going to vaccinate hospital workers. The nursing home is going to vaccinate its workers and its residents. Once you get into a broader population, I don't know, am I going to have to show my USA Today ID to get vaccinated? <laughs> right, exactly. It's, right. And, you know, I should be able to go theoretically to the Walgreens down the street and get that. So could you sneak in early? It's possible that you could, certainly with the age requirements. So the next group is over 75. The group after that, 1C, is 65 to 74, so that you could use a driver's license to show your age. For people who have comorbidities, who have other illnesses, high-risk medical conditions, if you walk up to a pharmacist and say, I have diabetes, I need a shot, are they going to question that? It seems unlikely. It seems like there'll be a lot of trust involved. I did have a question about uh, the Pfizer vaccine because the National Institutes of Health is looking for people to study those that have severe allergic reactions to the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I know there was a couple cases in the UK on the first day of the rollout. There was a few cases that have happened here in the United States as well. So the NIH is looking to find people so they can study this to see what might be causing all of that. So that's kind of what they have to do when they see a problem is get other people, kind of put them at risk in order to understand the problem. It's scary. I'm not sure I would volunteer for that, but right. I think, you know, certainly they'll have EpiPens and everything necessary, <clears throat> excuse me, to help people if they get into a, a bad situation. Is it as simple as just giving somebody an EpiPen to get them out of their allergic reaction or is there a lot more that goes into that? That actually seems to be the solution. I mean, sometimes I think with one of the four people you just mentioned needed a, a second EpiPen, a second shot. But in general, that solves the problem. But it's not fun from what I understand from people <laughs> right, exactly. who have given themselves shot. It's a shot. It's quite unpleasant. And, yeah. um, you know, probably takes you a couple of days to recover. So it's not like a sneeze. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a major medical situation. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Let's <laughs> go.
A lot of places are requiring a PCR test 72 hours in advance. Some places say, no, it has to be five days in advance. In some locations, there has to also be a rapid test done at the airport. Italy is requiring both a rapid test when you depart and when you arrive. Joining us now is Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good to be with you, Oscar. I wanted to talk about some of the things that the airline industry is gearing up with to try to make air travel safe again and really just to ramp up the whole industry. They're counting on testing to make people feel safer during the pandemic. Obviously, we have the vaccines on the way, but that's still going to take some time to roll out. So what are we seeing at airlines and airports? We're seeing testing sites at airports. We're seeing test results being put on passenger records. Some places are even offering flights for people that have tested negative specifically. So a lot of airlines are banking on this whole testing thing, but there are some problems with it as well. So Scott, tell us a little bit about it, please. This is really a save the industry push by airlines and tourism destinations, airports, governments. You know, a lot of businesses are involved in this and they really are desperate to restart travel. And certainly a lot of travelers are desperate to start going again. And so testing is seen as a way to make this happen. There's no real agreement yet on what the terms would be, if you will. A lot of places are requiring a PCR test 72 hours in advance. Some places say, no, it has to be five days in advance. In some locations, there has to also be a rapid test done at the airport. Italy is requiring both a rapid test when you depart and when you arrive. So there's no uniformity on that. And it's really unclear how much this really reduces the risk. It seems to reduce the risk, but certainly doesn't eliminate it. And Hawaii has been a good test case. Hawaii has pretty stringent testing requirements in place. And they've been able to reopen travel with uh, actually a a reduction in cases in the state, reduction in hospitalizations in the state. So they think it's working. But other places have had some difficulty with it. Hawaii, just real quick, they do have very rigorous testing requirements, so much so that you have to get a specific kind of test. You have to do it with a certain company. And people that are getting to the airport with the improper credentials, I guess you can say, they're getting turned away even. But the lieutenant governor there, who is a doctor and has advised on a lot of this stuff, says that they think it's a great success. As, as you mentioned, they kind of reopened with numbers going down even. And they think that being really strict about where you get the test done, what lab processes it, they think that's been one of the keys to their success. Half the people, a lot of people have gotten caught by that requirement. About half of them have been turned away at the airport when they go to board a flight. And the other half have shown up in Hawaii and not been allowed to enter unless they they quarantine. And they've been very strict about their quarantining. They monitor you at a hotel and things like that. You know, a lot of people are, they're getting tested at reputable labs. They're just not on Hawaii's approved list. (laughs) But I think the point for Hawaii is there's a lot of stuff out there. And if a test isn't done properly, you take the sample incorrectly, you get a bad result. And there are at-home tests. There are all kinds of different ways to get tested. And so there are even fake test results you can buy now. Yeah, that's so crazy. There were seven people arrested at the Paris airport selling fake negative COVID test results. 
So I think if you're trying to protect the population and you're going to allow people to avoid quarantining with test results, you better make sure that the test results are not only accurate, but trustworthy. Yeah, those fake negative test results were being sold to travelers from about $182 to $365. So, I mean, those are getting up there, rivaling some ticket prices, I would assume. Um, Yeah, no, it's not cheap at all. (laughs) Uh, Some of the other things that airlines are trying to do is roll out apps also, which will basically say your test came back negative. That way everybody knows it. You can kind of show it. They're trying to work through some privacy issues with that. And certain airlines are also offering flights for people specifically that were tested. And if you don't want to be tested or something like that, they'll move you to another flight. The app thing is interesting. Um, There's, you know, there's privacy concerns with it. If you're going to use it, you have to agree to sort of waive privacy requirements, but it is a way to sort of get the information quickly, easily into your passenger file. The COVID tested flights are Interesting. One of the keys to all of this is there, there was a flight from Dubai to Auckland, New Zealand, which has been studied extensively by health authorities because there were two people on board who probably were infected before the flight, but they had tested negative with the PCR test. And, you know, they may have been infected after they took the test, but before they got on the flight. And they infected, uh, there were five others who got infected. And they were all sitting within two rows of each other on the flight. So great concern about this. A lot of information about it because New Zealand has mandatory quarantine in a government-run facility for two weeks. So they could easily contact trace these people. And what it showed was, you know, negative test results do not mean that you're going to have a flight that's free of the virus. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. One thing we've heard a lot about learning pods is that they can be quite exclusionary and sort of a bastion of privilege. But the criticism I hadn't really heard was more to do with the fact that they are these very intense social situations that thrust a bunch of people together. Joining us now is Anna Silman, writer at The Cut and New York Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Thanks for having me. Wanted to tell some stories from learning pods. We've been talking a lot about COVID fatigue, teacher shortages, parents getting burned out with the way school has rolled out this year. Obviously, there's a lot of remote learning going on. There's hybrid classes. There's some kids that are going to in-person instruction. It's really all over the place. And one of the things that a lot of parents banded together with was doing learning pods. At least it gives the kids moments to socialize with each other. They can do lessons together, anything to kind of simulate a more traditional learning environment. But there's a lot of pros and cons to these learning pods. And you wrote an article like looking in to uh, some of these stories that you're hearing from parents. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, I think we've heard a lot over the past nine or 10 months about these new pedagogical experiments, you know, new ways parents are adapting to try and teach their kids during the pandemic. And one thing we've heard a lot about learning pods is that they they can be quite exclusionary and sort of a bastion of privilege. But the criticism I hadn't really heard was more to do with the fact that they are these very intense social situations that thrust a bunch of people together who may not otherwise have anything in common in this really high stakes situation. 
And that's what I wanted to explore in the piece. What happens when parents who have different parenting styles, different ideologies, all these scheduling conflicts come together to educate their kids together. And how can that go wrong? I love the way you put it in the article, actually. For families with young kids that are going through some of this, the prevailing mood of the pandemic has often been one less of forced isolation than forced intimacy. And that's the thing. When you're putting together parents and kids kind of making social groups in an instant almost, there could be a lot of butting heads. And the way you start the article on this is uh, talking about, uh, you know, some parents in uh, Pittsburgh and you say, you know, one mom is the Regina George of the neighborhood and she just kind of had this influence over a learning pod that she had nothing to do with, really. This woman, she had this neighbor who was sort of the queen bee and she had thought she and her pod had made an arrangement that they were going to really limit social contact and that they were all being equally risk-free. And then she went on social media and saw that this other neighbor was having a big party and all the neighborhood kids were there and she hadn't been told about it. And she said she felt like it was going back to middle school. Even though she has a PhD, they both do. She felt like she was back in middle school drama. And I thought that really crystallized some of the sort of crazy and fraught social dynamics that the pandemic has thrust people into. There are some positives where these pods do work and, you know, some of the kids kind of get a new enjoyment out of going to school instead of just doing the mundane Zoom calls. So there's been a couple of positives to come out of some of these as well. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think this article was really focusing on some of the sort of horror stories, but I think it's been, you know, really amazing for a lot of parents and it's been, you know, an opportunity for their kids to socialize and to continue learning in this incredibly difficult time when parents are really forced to teach their kids and they're working from home, you know, it's very stressful for parents. So I think, you know, in a lot of cases, these pods have been a saving grace of the pandemic. But of course, in any situation where people are coming together and kind of doing something on the fly, there's going to be butting heads. And politics can even infiltrate some of these learning pods where parents were butting heads on this. You had an example of that as well in the article. We had a family I spoke to in Colorado, and they were already having some tensions within their pod between the kids. And then they found out that the other family were Trump supporters, which they hadn't known, and that the kid had been talking about it, presumably to their daughter. And sort of, that was it for them. That was the last straw. And they said it was then easier to educate just their kid on their own and and (laughs) leave the pod. I mean, and these are some of the difficulties, as we kind of been saying about forcing these social situations in these sense. And, you know, there was a couple of parents saying, man, we're getting 30 plus notifications a day on trying to coordinate certain things. And for anybody that's been in a group chat with a few friends, I mean, you can get pings every other second sometimes. So these are some of the other frustrations that come along with forming these instant groups. It's sort of a logistical nightmare, kind of putting it all together. And then you're also in this strange situation where these other parents are your de facto social group because the kids are together all day. So you are in a bubble. And now suddenly this is your pandemic crew that you have to hang out with. And you might not really like some of these people. In fact, you might find that you have nothing in common with them at all. And that I thought was kind of fun and interesting to explore. Anna Silman, writer at The Cut and New York Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.